0: and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com MCAT. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Next Step Test Prep, the MCAT podcast is here to make sure you have the information you need to succeed on your MCAT test day. We all know that the MCAT is one of the biggest hurdles you'll face as a pre-med, and we're here to give you the motivation and information that you need to know to help get you the score you deserve so you can one day call yourself a physician. Welcome to the MCAT podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you get it every week. You can do the same with all of our podcasts at mededmedia.com, including the pre-med years, where I will help you write your personal statement, apply to medical school, pick your schools, write your secondaries, and all of that. Again, that's pre years.com This week we're diving Again, into the AAMC outline, going into more psych and social. Fail back for some
1: more MCAT podcasts. How are you today? I'm doing good. Good. Just got back from the University of Arkansas. Saw a lot of students there talking about uh, the podcast. It's pretty exciting for me. Felt like a minor celebrity since you've got me on here. Like, <laughs> they know who you are. And by proxy, all of a sudden, I feel more important. Hey, I know this guy. Yeah. Well, hopefully
0: you stay on long enough. You'll you'll get into the rarefied air that Brian and Clara were up to. Uh, they They became stars in their own right. So... Yeah, yeah ha- happy know. to have you ride my coattails to this <laughs> stardom of yeah, <laughs> pre-med. <your wife's> coattails. <laughs> there you go. Um, so last week we started diving into the double AMC outline, which for, for students we highly recommend, or at least I do. I know, I think you do too. I uh, yeah, highly absolutely. recommend students at least be familiar with, be aware of the double AMC outline. Uh and today let's go ahead and dive into some more, really just picking apart. Uh, especially for this psych so, psych so section, because it is uh, such an important section where a lot of points are or are won or lost uh, just based on just rote knowledge.
1: Yeah, it's that vocab stuff that's kind of like its own little section there. Um, so we talked a little bit about some of the stuff in 6A last time we were there, like sensory like stuff and perception and the differences between them and kind of what's going on with all of that. I figure we, we, you know, maybe we can just kind of like work through and hit some of the high notes from each of the section, things that students find very confusing um, and very complex. Okay. And so.
0: What if we find uh, it all confusing?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's some things that people like that's on the AAMC outline that people find like what's the difference between upper and lower class, right? Like everybody knows that, right? Everyone's heard of upper and lower classes. Um, There's also things, you know, like what's what's discrimination, what's prejudice. And so people find those things, you know, they kind of have a good idea of what's going on with that, but other things like heuristics and sensory memory, those things are a little bit more complex than, you know, discrimination, prejudice, those sorts of topics. Okay. So if we want to look at six B, um, like I was kind of like hinting at, heuristics are probably top of the list of things that students find kind of confusing. Um, and there's like heuristic is just a mental shortcut. So every morning you wake up, you know, I've got like all these things I need to accomplish. I need to pee. I need to eat. I need coffee, (laughs) right? Like all of these things are things that are kind of like going through my mind or maybe more accurately, they're not really going through my mind, but there are still things that I need to do. And so I don't wake up and then like sit there and deliberate, all right, what's first coffee or food or brushing my teeth, right? Like which, which of these things is the most important thing? Hmm. I just, I just kind of like go about my day and I'm not spending a lot of mental energy going through this. And so a heuristic is a like a mental shortcut for solving some sort of problem and kind of like going through those things. And there's a couple of different types of heuristics. There are, um, there's representativeness heuristic, and there's also availability heuristics. And those are terms, once again, that probably no one's ever heard of before.
0: Yeah, I haven't heard of them.
1: (laughs) So I always like to talk about availability heuristics first, because this is, this is the one that probably most people are comfortable with in terms of the idea of what's going on here. So let's, you know, the best way to always talk about these things is with examples. So Mm -hmm. let's say that you come home, you, you try to turn on your lights in your kitchen, you flip the light switch and nothing happens. Let's assume also that you're not like me and you're just not like, oh, I'll just live in darkness for the next year. and <laughs> uh, just like too lazy to, to oh well. do anything about it. Yeah. Oh, well. We we have a uh, flashlight on our phone, so we're good. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'll just put on my headlamp and spelunk in my own house. Um, so let's say you wanted to fix this, right? What would you do? What would be your first kind of like thought process of how to fix this darkness in the kitchen? Oh well, I would I would try it again, obviously, because maybe
0: it just something didn't work the first time. <laughs> yeah, uh, just flip it,
1: flip it yeah, eighteen times.
0: Exactly. Uh, it, it, assuming other lights in the house are working, I would go over and sh- maybe check a bulb. Maybe yeah. the maybe the bulb blew. Maybe we're we're in archaic times, not using LED bulbs that uh, last mm-hmm. forever. Um, and then if the other lights aren't working, I'm like, oh, maybe the 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 breaker uh, is out.
1: Fantastic. So, you just kind of like went through like several things there. Like first off, check to see if other lights are working. <laughs> then I would check the bulb and then the breaker and kind yeah. of like going through this. It's actually something kind of fun for me for with it with students. I can figure out like what students live in houses with electricity like mine was growing up where just like the light didn't work. I assume the breaker has broken. yeah, um, and so that is that's availability heuristic. It's based on experience. Your idea of like, oh, if the light doesn't work, usually it's because, you know, a breaker is flipped or because the light bulb has burnt, And you kind of have this like, this ordered list based on your experience and yours is maybe going to be separate from somebody else's. Mm-hmm. I was actually talking to a student, um, <laughs> earlier about this. I'm like, what do you do? And they're like, first thing is like, I like, call the super. And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, there you go. I, ha- to- I have my butler come yes. and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, all right, well that that's what experience tells you how to fix this. Is, yeah, You know, call somebody to fix it. Um, you
0: know, it's, it's so- very interesting that you bring that up because I was listening to an amazing podcast done by Radiolab talking about IQ tests and how amazingly uh, biased they are towards those people who look like the people who wrote the test, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of what would you do in this situation, right? Uh, they, yeah. they gave an example of you find a wallet in the store, what would you do? And, and the, the stereotypical white person creating this test is like, well, I would pick it up and I would go and give it to the manager or the cashier or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. and you have, you have African-American or those coming from uh, underprivileged or disadvantaged backgrounds going, "Uh, I wouldn't touch it. Right. I, I've been taught not to touch it because then they're going to assume I, I took it. Yeah. And it's just amazing the the thought process that goes into it, and and it's that availability availability heuristics, It sounds like is is what's at play there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's that's like a really good example of that. I'm going to hijack that and use that next time I'm talking. Take it. To it's it's an amazing yeah. series
0: on Radiolab. It's yeah. oh, like four I, or five episodes.
1: I, yeah, I really do love Radiolab. It's pretty great. Yeah. Um. So we also have the representativeness heuristic, which is different than the availability heuristic. And this is, you know, sometimes you don't have experience with something. Sometimes you find yourself in a problem. And it's like, oh, I've I've never come across this before. This is new, right? Pretty much every student feels that way on the MCAT, right? They, they like see a question like, uh, I'm not sure how to solve this <laughs> problem. Um, so representativeness heuristic is built around your conceptual understanding. You have some schema and some idea of what's going on with the process and some like conceptual thing rather than experiential. And so there's a lot of people that are going to switch the light bulbs. They don't they don't necessarily understand what it means when the light bulb is burnt out, right? That the filament has overheated to the point that the the tungsten filament is actually melted and separated. <laughs> and so you've you've broken the circuit, right? Like that's not built around understanding. It's built around the experience of like, oh, I switched the light bulb, it's fixed.
0: Mm.
1: So with a rep with the uh, representativeness heuristic, well, so let's assume let's imagine some some person who grew up in a place without electricity, grew up, you know, in a, a, a place with dirt floors and mud walls and, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but somehow they'd gotten hold of an electrical engineering textbook. <laughs> and so they like read this, you know, like it was their Bible. Like they're basically a, an electrical engineer at this point. They, they're really excited. They go into this, into your kitchen, they flip the light switch and nothing happens, Right. Their thought process of how to solve this is going to be different than yours. Their thought process might be along the lines of like, well, maybe this is an alternating circuit, but the light bulb is designed for a direct circuit or perhaps the wires are the wrong gauge. They're actually too thin. And as a result, the resistance is high enough. There's not electricity, not enough electricity going through Or or maybe the wires have been you know, wired up incorrectly. And there's too many things wired in series here. And that decreases the the resistance or mm-hmm. decreases the current because the resistance skyrockets. And like, that's very different than, oh, I switched the light bulbs. I call the super or whatever. just kind of like based on experience. But it is still a way to solve a problem. And so it's not... I got to be careful here because this sounds like, oh, like the availability is like the best, like just do that always. But you find people doing things like and then not knowing why. And maybe that's not like the best way to solve a problem. It's like my car broke down, so I smacked it on the, the hood and, and it starts to work. And so I just keep doing that. Right. And like, <laughs> Maybe that's not the best way to solve the problem. Um, so it's not that one's better than the other. They're just kind of like two different ways of solving any sort of problem that comes up. Um, you know, like background, like a small problem, even just like, do I brush my teeth or get coffee first? The answer is always get coffee. That's the highest priority of anybody's day, obviously, (laughs) but not mine.
0: I don't drink coffee.
1: uh, How how, did you drink coffee in med school?
0: Never. Uh, I've never had a cup of coffee. You're kidding me No.
1: Oh my gosh. i drank enough for both of us. It was, I remember one day of med school where we had a lecture on like the fatal dose of caffeine is somewhere between 50 and 200 cups of coffee. And I realized like, Oh, I drank 60 cups yesterday. And so (laughs) I should probably cut back a little bit on my coffee intake.
0: How do you Uh, drink 60 cups in one day?
1: Well, we, I had a 10 cup pot of coffee and I drank six pots of coffee over oh my the course God. of Lord! Uh, yeah, ex- exams were coming up. It's in med school. I, I i just decided to let that, let that go. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to be <laughs> addicted to caffeine. I'm just, I'm just going to do it. I'm okay with it. I feel sorry for uh, your bladder. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. I actually had three coffee pots hidden on campus. I had the one in the, the student break room, but then if just in case I couldn't get in there, I had one hidden in the lab and just in case I couldn't get in there, I had one st- hidden in a coffee or a conference room. Wow. So yeah, those coffee pots are still actually on the med school campus. I was visiting it the other day and noticed that (laughs) my coffee pots are still stashed around campus. So that's how I leave my mark. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So one of the other things uh, in the like section six B is memory. And I really like talking about memory because not only is it something that is really important, you know, to just make sure that you understand conceptually because the MCAT is going to test you on your knowledge of different sorts of memory, but also like if you understand memory better, it actually, you know, that that's useful. That's a useful thing on top of being tested on this content. It's also a really useful thing because understanding memory better helps you, you know, learn how to study better. Mm. Um, And that's kind of a useful thing. So Of the the big three branches of types of memory, we have sensory memory, short-term memory, and long-term memory. And somebody screwed up because we discovered short-term and long-term first, and then we discovered sensory memory. And it turns out that sensory memory is actually the shortest. So short-term memory should be called mid-term memory, (laughs) and sensory memory should be called shortest-term memory. But we already screwed up, and we already named it short-term memory. So we have sensory memory, which is a little bit shorter. Nice. So with sensory memory, this is, so imagine that I showed you a, a still from an image or from a movie, right? And so it's like two people sitting at a coffee table. One person's got kind of a weird look on their face. Like they're in the middle of a sneeze or chewing or speaking angrily or something. Um, little,
0: little when Harry met Sally
1: kind of vibe going on here. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Got it. (laughs) Um, And so. If I just gave you the still and asked you like, what's going on in the scene? Yep. You can't really tell me, right? Nope. In order to understand what's going on, you need to be able to stitch together multiple images into kind of like this, then this, then this, then this, and in order to make sense of it. Okay. And so sensory memory is um, the idea that your brain holds on to sensory information as it comes in and it holds on to it long enough for you to stitch it together so that then you can interpret whatever's actually going on. And this happens with all the senses, um, not just vision, which we're talking about, but also hearing and touch and things like that. And so the prob- perhaps the best evidence for sensory memory is the double take. When you kind of like look at something and then you look away and you're like, holy crap, that's Keanu Reeves over there fighting a polar bear, right? Like <laughs> Turn back, right? And it, like your brain is holding on to this sensory information as it's coming in. And it's taking a while to process, but it's still holding on to that sensory memory. And so this allows you to kind of like do the double take and process things going through there. And so that would be iconic sensory memory or based on icons or visual things. There's also echoic, which is based in sound. Um, evidence for that would be, have you ever talked to somebody who was like mumbling or had a very thick accent? Mm. And like they said something, it kind of took you a second and you're like, Okay. I, I know what they said. It, it took me a second. I kind of like the gears turn uh, because you're like holding on to those sounds in your head and trying to make sense of them and try to figure out like, what was that word supposed to be? Um, and so that would be echoic. There's also haptic, which is touch. Um, haptic sensory memory is not as important for most people, um, but it's huge for blind people. If you're reading Braille, right? Like you run your fingers across like those series of bumps, you got to remember what were those bumps I just touched in order to like, remember what these next bumps are going to be. And so that would be uh, an example of haptic or touch based sensory memory. So. Sensory memory, just need to know it's like the shortest of them. There's iconic, echoic, and haptic, which is, you know, seeing, hearing, and touching. Um, And they all last, you know, less than a second. And they're just kind of like as your brain is holding on to the sensory information as it comes in. Okay. So, after that, we have short-term memory. And so, short-term is a little bit less than a minute. Uh, It's called working memory or a a branch of sensory or a branch of short-term memory is working memory. Let me be careful here. Um, Working memory. I love the name because this is the only type of memory that requires work, right? Like, like input here. So you can imagine that you are in a scenario that let's say this is life or death, right? Like if you don't answer this question correctly, you're going to die. You have no, no, you can't write anything down. This all has to be done in your head. So the question is, What's 286 divided by 13? I know some of you guys are like, (laughs) I'm going to die. Right. Right? Um, So this 286 divided by 13. Some students like in their head are going to build this like whiteboard. Like I can see your like eyes rolling up into your head as you're trying yeah. to, like thinking. Is it twenty
0: two? The... No,
1: it is 22. It is 22, yeah. yeah. All
0: right. And so, cool.
1: so what you just did there was uh, you were using working memory, which okay. is, it requires active input, right? You have this visuospatial sketch pad, and then your head, you're kind of like a whiteboard, kind of like writing things around yep. and holding on to that. Um, now, if I ask you for your phone number in the middle of that. Like you have to restart. Like you can't like sh- working memory is not something it requires active input. It requires work. You can't, you can't just like, it's not like long-term memory, right? Like yeah. I'm not actively working on remembering my eighth birthday party.
0: Yeah. Right. But and, working you know. memory I've heard compared to, cause, cause my father-in-law is a neuropsychologist. He tries to explain mm-hmm. this working memory. What potentially some people may, may be able to understand is like computer RAM, Right. Mm-hmm. You, you only have a certain number of kind of spaces to open up your browsers and Photoshop and this and that. And once those get filled, then things start to slow down.
1: Yeah, yeah. Once you fill it up with Google Chrome, <laughs> at least in my experience. Um, yeah, but that's absolutely right. And actually, that's worth noting that for most people with short term working memory, the limit is about seven digits if you're dealing with numbers. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting thing kind of going there. Occasionally, the MCAT may actually want to test that. Um, and so that's one type of working memory, that sketch sketchpad. Mm. There's also the phonological loop. So. If, uh, let's say that Halle Berry came up to me and gave me her phone number. Right. And so let's, let's also say I don't have a pin. I don't have like my phone on me somehow. Right. Like I've, the battery's dead from using it to look around my kitchen. <laughs> um,
0: is this a nightmare and, that you have often?
1: Yes. Yes, okay. exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm in my, in the dark in my kitchen and Halle Berry is trying to give me her phone number. <laughs> um, happens all the time, right? Everyone can relate to this. Sure. And so she tells me her phone number and I need to hold on to this in my brain. Right. So let's say it's eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. Right. So <laughs> of course. In my, what I'm going to do is like eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine, eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine, eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. Somebody give me a pen, eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. And so when I like say it, that will restore it in my short term memory. And then I can say it again and then restore it in my short-term memory. So this is just kind of this like loop where I'm like holding something in my short-term memory, my working memory. Once again, it requires active input. If somebody asks me like uh, to do a math problem in the middle of it, well, I'm screwed, right? I've lost, I've lost the number. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so that's another kind of thing going on with short-term memory is that phonological loop. Um, after that, we have long-term memory, which is really awesome. I think, I I don't know, students, like just not even students, just people in in general don't appreciate how awesome long-term memory is that someone can be like 110 years old and remember their 10th birthday party. Yeah. Right. Like if you stored something on a flash drive and set the flash drive on your desk in 100 years, it's not going to work. Mm. Right. There's like data decay and all sorts of things kind of going on there uh, unrelated to just like real life, like oxidation and things like that. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, humans are better in as a long term memory storage than a flash drive. Right. Like that's really awesome. Just kind of conceptually. And so. Long-term memory, there's a couple of types. There is explicit memory, which is things you can explain. It's also called declarative memory because you can declare it. So declarative, explicit, you know, things you can explain or declare. Um, From that, you have the two branches, episodic versus semantic. So episodic is like an episode of, you know, your life, right? It's an experience versus semantic, which is like a fact. So knowing that lysine is a is is a basic amino acid right like that's a fact that's not really based on any sort of experience but it's based on something i just know right um versus episodic is so my go-to example for this is in for my eighth birthday party my mom asked me what we wanted to do for my birthday. And so I'm like, I want to eat pancakes on the roof. <laughs> and because my mom's a little bit weird, we did. We ate pancakes on the roof, which I actually don't recommend. they like asphalt got into the maple syrup.
0: You were the ashes. weird one for asking for it. Why are you blaming yeah.
1: her? Well, I don't know. Like, maybe, Yeah, maybe I'm the weird guy that asked for it. But like, it's just a weird family, right? So for my birthday party, we were all up on the roof eating pancakes. Um, and this is something that I'm going to remember forever right? And this is like an experiential thing. And that's a lot different than like lysine as a basic amino acid. So the experiential thing, that's an episodic memory. Lysine, that's a semantic memory. It's like a factoid. And those are both in this kind of a declarative explicit type of memory. There's also implicit memory, which is a different sort of long-term memory. So implicit ones are things that you can't really explain. They're implied implicit. Um, And so this would be something like, how do you walk? Right. Like this, you're not born knowing how to walk, right? Mm. This is, this is a memory based thing. You learn how to do this and then remember how to do it. Um, But a lot of people are like, well, isn't that explicit? Like I can explain how to walk, right? It's it's not just right foot, left foot, right? There's much more going on there. (laughs) You take somebody who, like had a stroke or something and like forgot how to walk. If you tell them, come on, it's just right foot, left foot, they're going to get really ticked off right? because <laughs> they know it's right foot, left foot, but they're having a really hard time, like flexing the core muscles and swinging the arms. Like how far do you lean forward based on your gait? The faster you go, the more you need to lean forward to kind of keep your center of gravity, um, kind of balanced with the acceleration. That's, that's all that walking is, is a controlled fall. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, it's really complex, but nobody thinks about this, right? It's completely <laughs> implicit. Yep. Like if, if I'm like, how do I speak? I'm not thinking about like, what do I do with my tongue to make these words come out of my mouth? Like I, I, I just know. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't born knowing how to speak. And so these are implicit memories, kind of implied things below the surface. Um, they're very often called procedural memories. Like how do I do this? How do I do that? Mm. And so these are kind of like skills and tasks and things kind of going through there. And um, like they're also kind of stored in a different region of the brain, which is worth noting. A lot of the long term memories, the declarative explicit like facts and experiences are more in the hippocampal region. The MCAT will test this. I'm not just talking about it for fun. Um, But a lot of the procedural memories are based in the cerebellum, those kind of like, you know, Mm -hmm. muscle memories and things like that. And we know this because people have strokes and like you damage different parts of the brain and people move kind of differently. Um, I actually find that procedural memories are probably one of the most annoying for, for patients, right? Like if they've forgotten the name of their fifth grade teacher, that's a little bit less annoying to them if they've forgotten how to eat. Or yeah. speak or yeah. walk, especially because they they put in zero effort to do any of that before. Because it was all implicit.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So it's actually kind of a useful thing to think about that if you find yourself as a student, you know, hitting that wall of like, oh, I cannot learn any more of this stuff, to think about. Well, maybe I should try to hijack a different sort of memory, right? So instead of trying to memorize stuff all in this kind of like semantic explicit stuff, maybe I should switch to trying to memorize something as an episodic thing and creating like a story or an experience there rather than just like by scenes basic, right? Like a lot of people will hit this wall. of Like I can't, my Ram is full, right? Like mm-hmm. I can't cram any more stuff into that. Maybe Ram's the wrong example there. Cause that's more short term memory, mm-hmm. but like whatever this like storage region is, is full and it's full of data, like volume or drive D or whatever in my computer. <laughs> and so let me try storing this in a different sort of way. And so coming up with, you know, stories and things like that, that's Songs. all exotic like memory. Yeah. Songs um procedural memories um actually the song thing I'm glad you talk about this I talk about this sometimes when I'm like talking about procedural memory so when I grew up I was in choir and we had a warm up that was like do the alphabet backwards right and so as a result I can do this and I don't think about it at all it's zyxvutsrqponmlkjihgfedcba right i just say z and my my brain knows what to do after this <laughs> and so that's all procedural yep right and so if you if you could do that with, you know, all the amino acids where you could just like spout them off that quickly in this sort of like, you know, sing song way, um, like that's storing this memory in a different region of the brain, maybe the one that doesn't fill up as much, um, if you kind of like find yourself a little bit. Full in your semantic memory region, and so this is why I really like talking about this is because not only is the MCAT going to test you on the difference between implicit, and explicit memory, semantic, episodic, short-term, and sensory, haptic, iconic, but also knowing how this works kind of helps you figure out how to study. Like maybe I can kind of focus in on a different sort of long-term memory to lock away, you know, the secrets of the MCAT.
0: Wow! So how? how would a question be framed to to draw upon some of this knowledge what 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 should a student expect to see that's where they're going to be like oh that's procedural that's semantic that's like what are we looking
1: at yeah so they could ask you know the MCAT's not going to ask just for straight up definitions Mm they never do that right like what's the definition of haptic memory they're not going to ask that sort of thing. But they might give you some sort of like scenario or passage based thing where this some person has um you know lost the ability to remember um certain like facts. Going forwards, so they have an anterograde amnesia focused in semantics mm. or episodic memory, kind of the hippocampal region. And so they might give you a passage here about like what's going on with this person who had a stroke in like the hippocampus and what kind of what sorts of memory would you expect to be remaining? So procedural memory would be like the top of the list, right? Like this guy still knows how to walk and mm. talk and do things, even though he's kind of like forgotten maybe who he was and, you know, like what what kind of amino acid lysine is. Um, or they might ask you something more like somebody had damaged their short-term memory, which of these things would they have the most trouble with, right? Or, or have the least trouble with. And they could ask you something about like, okay, you're playing a concentration game where you have to flip over cards and remember what the cards are. Um, you're in a room that you've been in for like five seconds, the lights go off and you got to figure out how to navigate out of here. Mm -hmm. Um, or. You know, something something along those lines. So like the navigating out of a dark room, that is, you have to hold the image of the room in your head. And you got to be like, okay, I'm here. I need to move this far going this way. So that's actually going to be working memory because you got to be kind of like constantly thinking about like, where am I at in this process? You know, something where if they teleported you out of that room and then two hours later, they teleported you back in, like you're not going to know exactly where you're at, right, within the room. And so that's going to be something that requires some active kind of like working short-term thing or, you know, they could throw in like, you know, Phil spouted off the alphabet backwards, right. You know, just like right off the bat um, or they, somebody did a math problem. And so math problem in the head. That's going to be short-term memory. The concentration game flipping cards. That's going to be short-term memory, knowing where you are in a room as you navigate it. That's part of the visuospatial um, sketch pad. Um, but spouting off something that you knew from a song from your childhood uh, like the alphabet backwards, that's not going to be short-term memory. That's going to be procedural.
0: Okay. Wow. So lots of stuff to know about memory and everything else. So I think that's a good one. We'll, we'll wrap up on here. Um, so yeah. a- again, just making sure you kind of understand these things, you understand that the, um, the the what do you call this big <laughs> this big document i forgot the name of it this outline yeah,
1: the, a- the aamc psych outline
0: yes this huge outline is there and and this is where a lot of those documents that you may find online the 300 page or 86 page whatever yeah. just built yeah. off of this and
1: yeah exactly and this is something that actually when i was in arkansas yesterday um, and, you know, talking to students there, they were all kind of like bringing this up. I, I really want to reiterate for students, though. Don't just like read through somebody else's outline. Be mm. trying to think about like, how is the MCAT going to ask me about this? Yep. Right. What Which of these am I going to get kind of confused on? The fact that sensory memory is shorter than short-term memory, I can see the MCAT asking that because if you haven't studied it, you can see short-term, you assume that's the shortest one, right? And so like thinking about those like little... Little like cracks and places where the MCAT might try to like you know stick their dagger in there to kind of wiggle around and kind of get that separation between who's a 125, who's a 126, who's a 131, and who's a 132. So you what kind of want to like think about like how is the MCAT going to ask us on this? Because you guys are smart, and that's that's you know the the MCAT has to try to like separate stuff, and that makes it tricky. Um, and so they're always trying to like trying to figure out how they can get that separation there. All right, there you have it. Again, that was Phil from Next Step Test Prep,
0: diving into the AAMC outline even more. Hopefully that was helpful for you. If you have questions you want answered, if you're looking for some more help on the MCAT, just give Next Step a call. Let them know you heard about them here on the podcast. You can call them at 888-530-6398. Again, that's 888-530-6398 you get a free consultation with one of their amazing team members. Again, 888-530-6398. Let them know you heard about them here on the MCAT Podcast. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT Podcast. This is MedEd Media.